follow along with us in our Bible study, and we are in Joshua chapter 5. So if you have your Bible, please open it to Joshua chapter 5. If you need a Bible, indicate so, speak now, or forever hold your peace. Joshua chapter 5. When I was in the fifth grade, the sports world was riveted by a seemingly supernatural, almost invincible boxer by the name of Iron Mike Tyson. It just seemed that he was absolutely unstoppable. And the question for us, the young kids that were, you know, putting pillows and taping them to our hands and punching each other and seeking to imitate what we were watching on TV. The question was never for us if Iron Mike was going to win the fight. The question was, would his opponent make it out of the first round? And that's the way it was. I mean, for four years, I think he had a, a run where only one or two fights made it out of the second round. And I mean, he was just invincible. His fists were just of fury and of great power. And so a couple years ago, uh, I stumbled upon a complete set of Mike Tyson's career fights. And the youth in me revived at that point, and I, and I bought it. I purchased it, and I took it home, and I started watching the Mike Tyson fights. You know, it's a great energizer. It's better than a Red Bull or five-hour energy. Just watch Mike Tyson, you know, and that'll get you going. And I remember, and I'll never forget, one of those fights. I think it was his eighth professional fight. He fought a man by the name of Donnie Long. And in this set, they showed the pre-fight coverage and the, you know, the interviews and, and different things. And, and, and Donnie Long was a pretty boy. He was very tall. He had a, a bit of success as a boxer up to this point. A little bit of a spoiler, you know. But he was a pretty boy. He had big hair. And, and they were asking him what his strategy was, how he was going to box, fight, defeat Mike Tyson. And he looked at the, 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 the interviewer and he said, I, I, you know, I'm going to box Mike Tyson. I, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to mix it up for him a little bit. And he's not going to know what's coming. You know, I'm going to box him. And, and, and so I'm watching this and it's okay. Let's see what happens. And, and then the fight begins and the announcer gets up and he's introducing the, the, the opponents, you know. And, and he introduces Donnie Long in the one corner. And, and Donnie Long did this. He had this pretty boy smile on his face. And he looked at the camera when they said his name, and he winked like this. He just, like, winked. And, and, and Georgia was, you know, and this was not common, but at this point, I remember she was sitting with me watching this particular moment, and I said to her, before seeing anything else, I said, he just lost this fight. He just lost right there. And sure enough, the bell rang, and... You know, the first knockdown happened quick, and the fight was over in one minute and 28 seconds. One minute and 28 seconds into the fight, Donnie Long was knocked out cold on the canvas, you know, and, and Mike Tyson was celebrating yet another victory, you know. And I'll never forget that. Now, the reason why Donnie Long lost that fight is because he came to that fight essentially to wink, and Mike Tyson came to win. Mike Tyson won that fight long before the opening bell ever rang. 
He won that fight in the preparation. He was ready for it. He had prepared himself correctly. And thus, when the opening bell came, he made light work of his opponent or his enemy because he had been prepared for it. Now, in Joshua chapter 5, we catch up with the children of Israel, and they are now in the promised land. Behind them is Egypt, where they had been slaves, where they had been in bondage, where they had been oppressed by the Pharaoh, where their burden was to bake bricks daily, and the the, the strain that was upon them caused them to call out for the Lord. Behind them was the wilderness, where they had wandered for 40 years, sustained, saved, delivered, but yet aimlessly wandering, bearing no fruit in their lives and serving absolutely no earthly purpose at all. Behind them was Moses, that stable symbol of a leader who was for them their provider, their lawgiver, their guide for all of those years coming out of Egypt and wandering through the wilderness. And now they find themselves in the promised land and before them is their future, their destiny. The thing that God had created them for, the thing that that he had had in mind for them from the moment that he called Abraham over 400 years previously, they now find themselves facing that future. But with that future comes a task. They're in the land, but there's a battle looming large. The walls of Jericho are within sight of where they are camped and they have a commission, a command from the Lord that now that they are in the land, they now have to go and take the land. It's been promised to them, but there's a battle. There's something they're being called to. They've got to conquer. They've got to be victorious. Now, in our study last week of chapters 3 and 4, we looked at and talked about some of the prerequisites that are involved with being led of the Lord. That was our topic last week, how to be led by the Lord. And we talked about the things that, that, that have to happen in our hearts if we want to be in a posture, in a position where God will lead our lives. Well, tonight's study, as we get into chapter 5 and we find them in preparation now for the battle, what we find, and this is our topic for tonight, What are the prerequisites for victory in the things of God? If the battle is won or lost in the preparation, then what type of preparation is necessary for the child of God to be victorious in the conquering of what it is that God has given them, what God has promised them? I don't think that any one of us here doesn't want to live the victorious life. We want, we desire to be victorious. The opposite of victory is to live in defeat, slavery, bondage, to be destitute, impoverished, both physically and spiritually, to live wandering and unfruitful lives. Victory, on the other hand, in the things of God, and what we were created for, is to be overcoming, overflowing, stable, free. What the Bible calls an abundant life that is joyful and that we would lead productive lives. That's what it means to be victorious in this life that we've been called into. Now, God has made a way for each one of us to be victorious. That's his will, his desire, his plan for us. He wants us to live the abundant life, but he also has called us to take up the arms and to fight for it. 
that there's a battle, there's a taking of the land if we're to live the victorious life. And what I've discovered in this life, and I know you've discovered it too, is that in any battle that we face, whether it be in small things or big things, whether it be in worldly things or spiritual things, what we're talking about now, the battle is often won long before the battle itself ever happens. It's won or lost in the place of preparation. So what can we learn from the children of Israel in Joshua chapter 5 that we might also be prepared for the battles that we have to fight in the territory that God has for us to take, that we might live completely in our promised land. What are the precursors to victory? How are we prepared for the victorious life? If you would, look with me at chapter 5, verse 1. We read there, it says, So it was when all the kings of the Amorites, who were on the west side of the Jordan... And all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over, that their heart melted and there was no spirit in them any longer because of the children of Israel. I find it interesting that he points out in the beginning of the verse, he singles out the Amorites amongst those seven Canaanite nations that he was going to drive out and destroy. The reason I find that interesting is because it was the Amorites that God had pointed out to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. It was the Amorites that had not yet fallen away from God to a point where he was ready to judge them. God said to Abraham, you are going to be a stranger in a strange land for 400 years. He said for four generations, and we know it was 400 years. Because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. And God had been patient with the Amorites. He gave them 400 plus years from the time that he had spoke to Abraham for the Amorites to repent. And yet now we find that God points out and he says, specifically singling them out, saying that they are now ready for judgment. They have corrupted themselves to the point where there is no return. I also find it interesting because most likely it is the Amorites that are the inhabitants, the citizens of the city of Jericho. He, he says that there, that, that the, the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan, those that were closest to the banks of the Jordan River, that would be the, the city of Jericho, where they are encamped, prepared for the battle. And, and so it's the Amorites that they will face first in this judgment, in this thing that they've called into. But he tells us there at the end of the verse, the first thing that is prerequisite to victory. The first thing that was for them, a guarantee that they would win. And that was very simply that they had crossed over. He says that they had crossed over the Jordan River. Now, I know we dealt with this last week, but I want to revisit it for a moment and just draw it to your attention again because it's that important. And if you didn't get last week's message, if you didn't hear it yet, you should. Because we learned that this crossing over of the Jordan River is symbolic or typical, an illustration of what we would call, as New Testament Christians, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The empowering of God's Holy Spirit in our lives, enabling us to live the Christian life. And in chapter 3, verse 16, we were told there that 
as they were on the eastern side in the wilderness, waiting to cross over the Jordan River, it tells us that the waters needed to be cut off at Adam, the waters that flowed into the Dead Sea. That is, that there was an impassable force that was keeping them from crossing over into the Jordan River. And I believe that in the life of many people, many believers, there is an impassable force that keeps them from entering into the fullness of the Spirit-filled life. They wander in the wilderness year after decade because of an impassable force that doesn't allow them to come into the land. I believe that the hint, the clue is given there in chapter 3, verse 16, is that the reason why is the water comes from Adam, from man, and it flows to the Dead Sea. And here's what that is. Here's the impassable force that keeps Christians out. It's that Christians refuse to break identity with the old man. They refuse to break identity with the old man. We just went through the book of Romans on Sunday mornings with Pastor Bobby here. I'm going through Romans with my kids uh, at night, you know, when we get a chance to do that lately. And one of the things I love teaching my kids in the book of Romans is the two, the two natures that the believer has. We're born into this world after the corruption of sin. We're born, we have this flesh, this sinful flesh that is driven by, that hungers for the things of the world, the things of the flesh. And then we're born again, and the Spirit of God comes and lives inside of us. And we're in a quandary, we have a problem. And that that problem is that now we're saved, and we have two natures living inside of us. Because the old man, the old nature, the Adam nature that we inherited from Adam, it's still in there. It still desires the things of the flesh, the things of the world. But at the same time, we have the spirit of Christ living inside of us. And that desires the things of God, the things of righteousness, the things that are holy. And there's this war that happens between the two of them. And here is that war. Is that that flesh... That old nature that lives inside of us will do anything to hold on to control of our lives. It will fight, it will scream, it will kick, it will cause us pain, it will do whatever it can to stay alive and to stay in charge of us. And the problem with that is that the spiritual nature that we've been given is very gentle and very patient, and he just waits. He won't fight and strive and kick against us trying to get into that place. He'll wait until we make the decision to crucify the old man, kick him off the throne, and allow the Spirit of God to have full rule and reign within our lives. And so what does it have to do with this impassable force? This is what I discover dealing with Christian people when it comes to this topic of living the Spirit-filled life. They know what a Spirit-filled Christian is. They know what a spirit-filled Christian looks like. But because they refuse to break identity with the old man, the old flesh, they say, I can't. I can't live that life. I can't become a person of prayer. I just don't pray. I I, I never have. It's just not natural for me to, to pray or to pray publicly. I don't talk about the things of God openly. That's just an uncomfortable thing for me. It always has been. 
This river has flowed for a long time. There's history here, and I just can't get to the other side of that because it's just not a part of who I am. I can't do those things that that, that I see, you know, to have a structured life, to have an ordered life. I, I can't do those things. I just don't do them, you see. And see, that's the problem. That's why people don't cross over. They don't experience it because they refuse to break identity with the old man. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, it says this. It says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. That old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And that means that there is nothing that inhibited you in your old man or in your Adamic fleshly nature that can impose upon what the spirit of christ wants to do as he empowers and fills your life there is nothing that can stop the holy spirit from giving you the abundant life that jesus said he's calling us into unless you refuse because of excuse to break identity with the old man you say how do i get into the promised land how did they get into the promised land they had to get their feet wet they, said, they could have just said, no, no, this is an impassable river. We're never going to get across it. But instead, it tells us that they went down, and as soon as their feet hit the water, the feet of the priests hit the water, it says that then the water stood up in a heap at Adam. It was cut off. The source of excuse from the old Adamic nature was cut off. The water that flowed into deadness, to the Dead Sea, stopped, and the people crossed over. And that's what the Lord may be calling some of us into, to get our feet wet, to stop making excuses as to saying why we can't live the spirit-filled life, or to say, it's not for me, it is for some, but no, I'm, it's, it's, no, no, it is for you. And the Lord is calling you, he's calling us to walk through and cross over into that life. It was prerequisite. The need to be filled with, baptized with the Holy Spirit of God is not an option as it pertains to our living of the victorious Christian life. The purpose of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is that we might have power to live the life of victory. For some, I believe that that impassable river is as simple as you say, well, I don't believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I was taught or I learned or I read in a book that there's no such thing as that, that that, that doesn't exist. Listen, I just want you to know if that's your, your bent on things, we've noticed Listen, the baptism, the empowering, the, 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 the moving of the Spirit within your life is not about gifts. It's not about speaking in tongues. It's not about being slain in the Spirit. It's not about Holy Ghost hoopla. The power of the Holy Spirit in your life, promised by Jesus, demonstrated in the book of Acts, taught on the epistles, and demonstrated in the lives of Christians, the reason for that is not about how much you can show off in church. But rather, it's how straight can you walk when your feet hit the ground in the name of Jesus, when you're living your life out in the world. And if you don't have that, then the life of victory is something that you'll always notice in others, but you'll never experience for yourself. It tells us that they crossed over into the land of promise, a symbol of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And notice the contrast. The children of Israel at this point, they're charged. They just saw the mighty hand of God stop an overflowing river to let them across. You can imagine that at this point, there's nothing that's going to stop them from going forward in what they've been called to do. They are full. They are charged. They are ready. They are motivated. 
And the contrast of that is the Canaanites. Notice what it says about them. It says that their hearts melted in them and that there was no spirit left. They were void and empty. When your enemy's Christian, and your enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil, and you can fit everything that is an enemy to you under one of those categories, your enemies, when they see you living the spirit-filled life, they cower in fear because they know they cannot stand up against you. The spirit-filled life, they crossed over. Number two, as it concerns our preparation for victory in the promised land, not only did they embrace the spirit's power, but they also cut away the flesh. Notice with me in verse two. It says, at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives for yourself and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. For all the people who came out, the previous generation, had been circumcised. But all the people born in the wilderness on the way as they came out of Egypt, they had not been circumcised. That is, the second generation. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people who were men of war who came out of Egypt, that's the first generation, were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord to whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers, that he would give us a land flowing with milk and honey. Then Joshua circumcised their sons, whom he had raised up in their place, for they were uncircumcised, because they had not been circumcised on the way. So it was, when they had finished circumcising all the people, that they stayed in their places in the camp till they all were Now, if you don't know what circumcision is, www.wikipedia.com and just type the word into a search and you'll find all the information that you need to know about what circumcision is. What circumcision is is not important to us tonight, but what is paramount to our study and our understanding of what's going on here is what circumcision symbolized. Circumcision for the child of God, for the Jew, the descendant of Abraham, it was a sign that was given to Abraham of the promised covenant that God had made with him and with his descendants. It symbolized a cutting away of the flesh in the secret place. That was the symbol that was intended to be spoken or understood through the rite of circumcision. Now, You know, again, we talk about those two natures, the nature of Adam that lives within us and the nature of Jesus or the spirit that we get at the moment that we're born again. Now, to embrace Jesus in our lives carries with it the duty or the responsibility in us, in our will, our volition to cut off the life of the flesh that we had previously lived. And so circumcision It is not something that is outward in nature, in symbol, or for the Christian, but rather circumcision is a symbol of the cutting away of the flesh in the secret place, which is the heart, the inside. 
That's true throughout the Old Testament and the New. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, Moses said this. He said, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. It wasn't that which was outward in the flesh that was significant. It was the inward symbolism of the cutting away of that old Adamic sinful flesh to cut it off. Paul explains it in the New Testament, book of Romans, chapter 2, this way. Romans chapter 2, verse 28. He says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. In other words, it wasn't the fact that you were circumcised and you had the papers or the credentials to show it in your flesh. It's has God done a work and you in agreement with God of cutting away the fleshly nature that's inside of you from birth. To the Colossians, Paul said it this way. He said, and you are complete in him, that is Christ, who is the head of all principality and power. In him, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. That is, it's not physical that matters, but putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And so circumcision is a symbol of the cutting away of the flesh in the secret place, in the heart. In the place where no one else knows what's going on in your thought life, in your behaviors, in your actions, in your habits that you do when no one else is around. Have those things been cut out of your life or do you secretly embrace them and you live this dichotomy of existence wherein on one side you're living after the flesh in everything that your affections are driven towards, but you're living after the spirit in everything that's outward in appearance. It should be that your outward appearance is just a reflection of what's going on inwardly that is Christ is seated upon the throne in your heart. And the flesh has been cut off completely. There's a couple of things that we notice in this circumcision in Joshua's day that give us some insight into what it means. First of all, we recognize uh, that the wilderness did not afford the necessary means of fulfilling this circumcision. That as long as they were wandering in the wilderness, they didn't have the resources or the ability to go through with the rite of the circumcision. Whether that was because they couldn't stay in one place long enough to let people heal, or because they didn't have the knives, as we're told that he had to make flint knives. We don't know exactly why they didn't do it. We just know that the wilderness didn't afford them the necessary means of completing it. And here's what that tells me uh, uh, for the Christian, for you and for me. It tells me that a Christian that is still wandering in the wilderness in their Christian experience, haven't entered into the fullness of God, that that person is inevitably going to be struggling with the sins of the flesh. The wilderness does not provide the necessary means of cutting those things that are detrimental to our spiritual health out of our lives. That it's only in the promised land that those things can be accomplished. And if you are a wandering Christian then it shouldn't be a surprise to you that you're struggling with the sins of the flesh because it's in the promised land that that tool can be afforded to you that you can cut it off. 
The truth of the matter is that you are going to feed on something. Every one of us feeds our soul on something. You're either feeding your soul according to its fleshly appetites, or you're feeding it according to its spiritual appetites. The flesh feeds on a lot of things. The flesh feeds on anger. Not everyone, but some people can really feed on that. It's an emotion that they they almost look for because there's an energy in it and they feed off of it. Some feed on lust, on enticing themselves, on allurements. And so they'll bring themselves into a place of lust and then they'll feed on that lust and they'll find energy. They'll draw from that, that source, you know. And the fact of the matter is that you're constantly going to struggle in the flesh if you're not drinking the living water and feeding your spirit in Christ. You're going to feed it on the things of the flesh, entertainments and amusements and so forth. The next thing I notice about this circumcision is that they had, these people had to make the decision and the commitment to cut the flesh out. That would be a difficult decision to make, especially if you were a grown male around the age of 40. To have to go through with this thing and to make the decision yourself to say, I agree, I need to cut it out because I want to live completely for God. It would be a decision that would incorporate a little bit of pain. We see that in verse 8, that they needed to heal, you know. If you're struggling in the sins of the flesh tonight and you're a believer in Christ, you know what you need to do. You need to make a decision and there's things that you need to cut out of your life that you might live completely for God. And there might be some pain involved. There may be some things that you cut out of your life and it causes there to be some withdrawal symptoms because of what your body is addicted to or what your body is used to. But you know that you need to because you're not enjoying the fullness of God's presence and God's spirit reigning and ruling in your life. It might put some strain on a relationship that you have because you might have to come out and be honest about something that's going on in your life, you know, that someone that's significant to you might struggle with. It might be a difficult thing, but you know you need to do it. You need to cut those things out of your life that are causing you to stumble, causing you to live the life of the flesh. It was painful, but notice that it heals. They stayed in that place until they healed, and you'll be the better for it when you're living completely for the Lord. I notice also in this that it takes faith. They've just crossed over into a place where they're going to go to war. In a couple of days, they're going to be fully engaged in a battle, and and, and they know it. And the fortified double walls of Jericho are right there, and the army knows that they are on their side of the river. And it takes a lot of faith a couple of days before a battle. In a situation where your enemy may strike preemptively, to do something that's going to incapacitate the men that are in your military. That takes faith. I think of the men of Shechem back in Genesis when, when you know, the, the men of Shechem, the son of Shechem, the king, violated Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. Essentially, he raped her. And because he then loved her, the king of Shechem came to Jacob and said, hey, let's make a covenant between your people and our people. And and we'll buy and sell from each other. Your sons can marry our daughters and our sons can marry your daughters. And we'll just be one family all together. And Jacob said the only way that we could even consider that is if you circumcise all of your males. And so Shechem convinces his men that that's the way to go. That it's economically wise for them to be in allegiance with the sons of Jacob. And so he circumcises the men. And the Bible tells us that Simeon and Levi, two of the sons of Jacob... Just two of them 
went in and wiped out all of the men of Shechem in one foul swoop. That gives you the idea of you know, how much fight you have in you after undergoing that operation. And that's what we see these men doing, knowing that they are vulnerable, that they're in a place when they can be undone, attacked, yet they're willing because of their faith and their desire to be obedient and because of the place where they are in God's promised land, because of all that he had done for them in bringing him thus far and all that they needed from him in moving forward, they had to do it. And thus they did. And it required faith. The application of all of this for our lives is this. Is that the Holy Spirit will not share time or space in us with the flesh. It's been well said that in every human heart there are two articles of furniture. There is a throne and there is a cross. There are also two people living there. The flesh and the spirit. And if the flesh is seated upon the throne, then that means that the Spirit of Christ is hanging on the cross. But if the Spirit of Christ is sitting upon the throne, then that means that the flesh is hanging upon the cross. And someone is always occupying a chair. It's like musical chairs, one or the other. And if the flesh is ruling and reigning in your life, then that means that the Spirit has yet to take up the place of authority, the place of blessing, the place of empowering in your life. He's yet hanging upon the cross, waiting for you to decide to cut off the flesh that the Spirit might truly reign in you. That's God's will for your life. That's what He wants. And so if you want to live the victorious Christian life, then it's essential for you that you cut off the flesh, that there be a circumcision in your heart, and that your way be prepared before the Lord. The third thing that we notice here is in verse 9 through 12, and that is that they were obedient to God's word. Verse 9, it says, Then the Lord said to Joshua, This day I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Now, I like that. The reproach of Egypt for the children of Israel is that their reputation is that they were slaves. That's what they were in Egypt. They were slaves to the Pharaoh. They were in destitute, impoverished bondage, and that was the reputation that they carried with them everywhere they went. Those are Pharaoh's servants. And God says, from this day, that is no longer your reputation. No longer do the nations of the world look at you and say, you are a former slave, but they now look at you as a fearful son or daughter of the living God, someone to be feared, venerated, respected. I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. Therefore, the name of the place is called Gilgal, which means rolling, because he rolled the reproach off of them, to this day. Now, the children of Israel camped in Gilgal and kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at twilight, on the plains of Jericho. Now, we're told in the last chapter that all of this was taking place in the first month. It was the first month, the 14th day of that month, when Moses commanded them to keep the Passover. Now, if ever there afforded them an excuse, a reason why not to stop what they're doing, to obey something that God told them, this is that time. They just crossed over, they're preparing for battle, and now they have to stop, they have to interrupt their lives because of an act of devotion, a tradition really, a ceremony of remembrance that they had to keep on the 14th day of that month. And they decided, you know what, we need to, rather than 
move forward with our purpose right now, we need to stop and we need to do what God told us to do, even if it's a little bit inconvenient, if it seems like it's not the time for us to do that. We need his help. He's been gracious to us. We need to do it. Now listen, as it concerns the people of God, and that's as well for them, and it's true for you and I that are here tonight, our victory and our progress in our faith is not dependent upon our momentum It's not dependent upon our strength, our gifts, our resources, our numbers, our creativity, or anything else that we possess. Our victory stands or falls in one thing, and that is obedience. That was the whole theme of Moses' last 30 days, remember? (laughs) We spent about, what, six months, you know, talking about it. 30 days, Moses said to them, listen, obey, just obey. You want to do well? Obey. You want to win? Obey. You want to prosper? Obey. Well, here's a chance for them to obey. (laughs) They're to keep the Passover, this commemoration, this celebration at this time, though it would be inconvenient for them. And yet they did it. You know, I think of Jesus in this. Last week, we talked about how closely the ministry of Jesus shadows what took place in Joshua chapter 3 and 4. Jesus went through the Jordan River. He pulled out 12 stones. You know, if you weren't here, listen to it. But, but, but think of this. What did Jesus do as soon as he came out of the waters of baptism? It tells us that he went into the wilderness for 40 days fasting that his obedience might be tested. That's what Jesus did immediately after coming out of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is that he went into a place of solitude, a place of suffering, really. Here he is empowered. His ministry is about to begin. He's going to change the whole world. He's going to hang on a cross and purchase salvation for sinful man. And it's time to go. It's time to fight. It's time to conquer Jesus. But no, Jesus, no, it's time to obey. And it says that he was driven of the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And he was obedient in three areas. He, he overcame in three areas that represent all temptation as it faces man. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. And that's what Jesus did. And that's what we see them here called to do. Is hey, you've come through. You're empowered. You're ready. You're motivated. But there's something for you to do in the meantime. There's a feast for you to keep. And they pass the test. They're obedient to keep God's word. There's never a time in them that they say, no, this is inconvenient. Or my service for the Lord, which at this point for them is to take the land. My service for the Lord is more important than my devotion to the Lord. We must be careful as Christians that our service for the Lord never upstages our devotion to the Lord. All service that we perform for the Lord. Lord, I'm taking the promised land. I'm doing what you told me to do. I'm I'm living the victorious life. I'm busy about the things of ministry. If those things upstage our simple obedience to be what he's called us to be in our simple devotion to him, then we're out of order. We've put the cart before the horse spiritually. I think of Mary and Martha, and you know the story. Martha was serving, 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 serving. There's work to do. There's food to be made. The house is a mess. We've got to get things done. Jesus is here. And Mary was sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to his word. And Martha was 
choler, anger. You know, she's, why, Ma- Mary, can't you see that, that I'm busy? Jesus, can't you see what I'm doing? Why is it that you're, you're so tenderly talking to Mary and, and you're loving on Mary, you're revealing yourself to Mary, I'm the one serving you. And she finally gets so frustrated, she interrupts Jesus and she says, Jesus, would you tell my sister to help me? And Jesus mildly and gently rebukes Martha. He says, Martha, Martha, you're cumbered, troubled with much serving, but one thing is needful, and Mary has chosen that better part, and it's not going to be taken from her. To sit at my feet and hear my word is more important to me than your acts of duty and devotion and your service for me. True service, true ministry, true conquering of the land, true progress in the kingdom of God is always an outflow of our devotion and love for the Lord and not the other way around. And we see that they got it right. They said, yes, we need to do what he's telling us to do. We need to remember the blood. We need to eat unleavened bread. We need to remember who he is and why all of this exists. Listen, God is not in the business of raising Oompa Loompas. We are not here to be trained to be robots and vacuum cleaners for God and for his sanctuary. God isn't raising servants. He's raising sons and daughters. And he's way more concerned with your and my intimacy with him than he is with our service for him. And when we get that backwards, we're in a bad place. One of the precursors to their victory was that they served out of devotion. They were obedient to his word. Notice that God honored it. Look at verse 11. It says, and they ate of the produce of the land on the day after the Passover, unleavened bread and parched grain on the very same day. That was the first time that they ate the fruit of the land of Canaan. Prior to this, they had eaten manna every day for the past 40 years. Some of the people in this congregation had never tasted a peach. They'd never bit into a banana or peeled back the skin of an avocado or ate grapes or pomegranates. They had never had that. They didn't, the, the wilderness didn't afford any of that, and this would be the first time. God honors obedience. They kept the Passover. God said, good, now eat the fruit of the land. And he blessed them. It says, then the manna ceased on the day after they had eaten the produce of the land, and the children of Israel no longer had manna. Praise the Lord for them. Though. They were tired of it. It's like college cafeteria food or hospital food. You know, it's gonna, it'll keep you alive, but boy, am I glad that's over. You know? But it says that they ate the food of the land of Canaan that year. I've never been disappointed in my life personally when it comes to a choice to obey the Lord. Every time I've chosen to do God's will over what I want to do or what I think is strategically best to do, I'm always glad that I chose to obey God rather than do it my own way. And they would say amen to that as they, they now come in, they eat the fruit of the land, the manna ceases, God is pleased. He's leading them. He's blessing them. They're in his will. They're in his presence. Number four and finally in this thing is that in this, this concept of precursors to victory is that they, they took their proper place. Notice in verse 13. I love this text. It says, and it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked. 
and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? So he said, no. But as commander of the army of the Lord, have I now come? And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped. And said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, Gilgal, the place where they were camped, is about 10 furlongs from the city of Jericho. That's a, a, a reasonable distance. And we're told here that Joshua now was by Jericho. This is prior to the battle, prior to a battle plan. And you get the idea that Joshua is doing at this point what you or I would be doing, pacing. All eyes are on him. He's the captain, the leader of the host. Everybody's looking at him. The walls of Jericho are right there in their presence. The children of Israel don't have weapons. And they're about to go into battle against this double-walled fortified city. And they don't know how they're going to do it. And neither does Joshua, who is the commander of the army. And so Joshua's out. He's wandering. He's walked his way towards Jericho, perhaps hoping that perhaps he'll be inspired, that he'll see a vulnerability, that something will come to him, a stroke of genius, and he'll be able to make a plan. And as he's there, no doubt praying, begging God to help him, he looks up and says he lifted up his eyes towards Jericho. And he says he saw a man with his sword drawn in his hand. He's startled. He's alarmed. He, he, he looks to the left and to the right. He sees the man again and he asks the obvious question. He says, are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And expecting an answer that will be either in the affirmative, yes, we're for you or against you, the answer comes back, no. Wait, wait, no, 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 no. That's not what I asked. Are you, maybe I, let me try to speak Amorite. Are you for us or for our enemies? No. That's, that's not the question I'm asking you. Wait, Joshua, who are you talking to? He identifies himself. He says, I am the commander of the host of the Lord. And as such, I have now come unto you. In other words, Joshua, you're the one that needs to answer the question. It's not about, am I on your side or am I on their side? The answer to both of those things is no, I'm not on your side and I'm not on their side. The question is, Joshua, whose side are you on? I know that they're not on my side. Are you? You see, it's not your battle, Joshua. You aren't the captain of the host. You're not the one that's leading this battle. You're not the one that's in charge. You're not the one that all eyes are upon. I'm the one with my sword that's going to war against those people. And I'm going to go to war against those people. Are you with me? That's the question. That's the question that was asked of Joshua. It's the question that Joshua needs to answer. Whose side are you on? Now, this would be a great encouragement to Joshua. Because basically, the Lord is saying, you know, here to him, he's saying, are you with me? You're number two. You're not number one. And can you imagine the sigh of relief that would come over Joshua in realizing, recognizing that it's not his battle, that he's not the one that's responsible to come up with a plan. 
God's saying, this is my plan, and I'm going to be... Now, who is the commander of the host of the Lord? There's some people that try to say that this is an angel. Perhaps this is Michael, or perhaps this is, you know, some angel that had been ordained of God over the armies of God. I don't think so. There's two things in this text that lead us to believe that this is none other than God himself. What the Bible calls a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. You say, well, where does that come from? Well, first of all, he's worshipped. It says that Joshua bowed down and worshipped before him. Now, any time that a man in the Bible mistakenly worships an angel, the angel always says, get up. Don't do that. I am a fellow servant like you. Worship God. That happens not once or twice, you know, throughout the Bible. The angel will never receive worship because worship is reserved for God alone. But we don't see that here. We see that this person receives the worship that Joshua gives. And then clue number two is that this commander of the host of the Lord says to Joshua the same thing that the Lord said to Moses at the burning bush. He said, take off your sandal from off your foot for the place where on you stand is holy ground. This is none other than the Lord himself who has come here to visit Joshua and to encourage him and to strengthen him and instruct him for the battle that is at hand. Now, this puts Joshua in the number two seat, which means this. Who's first? The Lord. And Joshua's number two. And that's true for you and for me. The battle that we face, the city that you and I are called to conquer, the promised land that's been given to us, and the battles that are associated with it in our lives are not our battles. They're his battles. And the Lord is the one with the sword drawn saying, I'm going to go forward and I'm going to fight. Are you with me? See, there's two positions that you can stand in. You can either be in front of the Lord and you don't want to be there because he's got his sword drawn and he's ready to swing. Or you could be behind him. If you're behind him, if you're in the number two place, surrendered, submitted, then you're going to be the beneficiary of the blessing of the victorious battle because he's going to win the battle. He doesn't lose battles. See, submission and authority are inseparable in, in the world. I mean, this is, this is gospel. It's like gravity. What goes up must come down. There is a law of submission and authority. You cannot, a person cannot, whether they are the president of the United States, the prime minister of Israel, or whether it's you and I in our conquest of our life, you cannot have authority in your life or over anything unless you are also in submission. That was true of the centurion in Christ's day that had authority over a hundred men. He said, my authority is strong because of who I am submitted to. I bow my knee to Caesar. Therefore, when I speak, they listen. I say, go, he goes. I say, come, he comes because they know who I am submitted to. Jesus, by his own admission, said, my authority doesn't come from me. My authority is the result of who I'm in submission to. He says, I do always those things which please my father. I didn't come to do my own will, but what I hear, that I speak. And what I see, that I do. Jesus walked on this earth in submission to his father. And therefore, he had authority over all creation. Why? Because God has authority over all creation. 
Jesus could walk on water because he was in submission to his father. Jesus could multiply loaves and fishes because he was in submission to his father. He had authority in his life because of who he was submitted to. And the same thing is true for any one of us. Is that if we refuse to bend the knee before the Lord, then we can count ourselves out concerning having his authority or his sword going before us, fighting our battles that we might be victorious. See, the key to living the victorious life is that he maintains his proper position as Lord and we maintain our proper position as follower or servant, subservient to him. That's where victory comes from. And see, they had these things. They, they had their ducks in a row. Uh, understand this, that the life that we're talking about, the victorious Christian life that we want to live, that we agree with, that life is the Lord's life. It's his land. Notice that he said, he said, the place whereon you stand is holy ground. No, no, Lord, this is Canaan. This is unholy ground. This is Jericho, Amorites, Jebusites, you know, Perizzites, Hittites. This is not holy. No, no, Lord says, this is my land. And therefore, it's holy land. And this life that you and I long to live, the abundant life, the victorious life, it's his life. And because it's his life, he can give it to us. He can conquer it and deliver it to us in any way that he can. And so what's the command that he gives? He says, take your sandal off your foot. Whatever it is that is separating you from standing on my land, take it off. Whatever it is that's making you think that you're the one guiding your steps or leading your path, the sandal speaks of the step or the path, take it off. And unite yourself with me. Stand upon my holy land. Skin to skin. Heart to heart. Spirit to spirit. Follow me. What's separating you from walking in the fullness of God's promised land? Take it off. Put it out of your life. And give yourself completely to him. As we close... The battle that they fight at Jericho... In the next chapter, and this is kind of a spoiler, but I still hope you come back next week. The battle that they fight in Jericho is going to take about a minute and 28 seconds. About as long as it took Mike Tyson to knock out Donnie Long. That's how long the battle's going to take. The reason is not because of what's going to happen in chapter 6. The reason is because of what happened in chapter 5. The victory was won before the battle was ever fought in the preparation, in the place of preparation. I don't know where you're at here tonight as you sit here, where your life is. If you would say your life is an expression of God's glory. Would you look at your life and say, I'm living the abundant life that, that Jesus promised me. That, that my life is the full expression of what God had in mind when he created me. That's what I'm living right now. The God of glory who seeks to flow through me to manifest himself to the world. And I get to be a blessing, a beneficiary of the blessing of God in that. I'm living that life. If not, if you would say I'm lacking, I'm coming behind, I would ask you these questions. First of all, have you crossed over? Have you put your feet in the water, stopped making excuses about why you can't 
and why it's not in your nature or it's not in my past history or my family history doesn't allow that kind. It would stop. Maybe you need to come to the water and put your feet in and say, I'm crossing over, God. Cut off the waters at Adam and bring me into your land. I need to be filled with your spirit. I need to be empowered. I need this life. And I need to stop identifying with Adam and start identifying with Christ. Have you cut away the flesh? Has your heart been circumcised? That your devotion isn't secretly feeding upon things of the flesh, the ways and means of the world, Satan's allurements and enticements? Or have those things been cut off? The Holy Spirit will not interrupt and he will not usurp. He will wait. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15 says this. It says, For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and confidence shall be your strength. But you would not. And you said, No, for we will flee on horses. Therefore you shall flee. And we will ride on swift horses. We're going to do it our way. Therefore, those who pursue you shall be swift. One thousand shall flee at the threat of one, and in the threat of five, uh, at the threat of five, you shall flee till you are left as a pole on top of a mountain and as a banner on a hill. Therefore, now this is it, verse 18, listen. Therefore, the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you, and therefore he will be exalted, that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. See, he's not going to usurp. He's not going to interrupt. He's not going to come into your life and say, all right, enough of the flesh thing. I've let you struggle for five years now, and now I'm just going to come in and, and, and just wipe it. No, no, you make the decision to cut it off. And God says, I'm going to meet with you there. And my spirit will take its place upon the throne of your life and you'll experience life in a way that you never thought you could. Are you obedient? Faith is proved by obedience. And have you taken your place in submission to the Lord? The Lord stands with his sword drawn and he invites you to follow after him. I don't think any of us want to stand in front of him. Father, we thank you tonight for this word. As we consider, Lord, how good you were to your people then and how all of it speaks into our lives now. We would pray, dear Lord, that you would show yourself strong on our behalf as we would walk in your ways. We pray that we wouldn't live wandering, aimless lives. That we wouldn't walk into a battle half-hearted and unprepared. But that our hearts would be set right before you. That every moment of this Christian journey, as we travel with you, as we grow in you, Lord, that we would find we're being brought from strength to strength. That we're being led, that we're being filled. That our understanding is growing. That our feet are making progress. And that our spirits are soaring. Father, I pray for each person here tonight that they would find victory in Jesus Christ. No more excuses. No more low living. No more wandering. But absolute surrender and assurance that what you promise to perform, 
that you also will do. For you said the flesh profits nothing and that we could do nothing on our own, but that in you, we could do all things. So help us, Father. Be our God, be our guide. I believe that our country, in some sense, has become the new Jericho. Not just our country, but our world as well. And I think if we could see spiritually what was going on in the boardroom and in the activities of the heavenly realms, we would see the Lord again standing, this time facing our nation, our world, again with his sword drawn, ready to judge ready to move in, ready to take over. Just like Jericho, that had been heathen territory, became holy ground. The Bible says that there's a day coming when the kingdoms of this world are going to become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. He's going to judge the world. I believe that we're facing that day. and We're watching the systems of men and the corruption of sin, destroy and decay the world from right before our eyes. And I believe we're very close to that. The question that was posed to Joshua tonight might be posed to you, unbeliever. Whose side are you on? Are you a citizen of Jericho? Or have you submitted to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? If you don't know Jesus, You're missing out on the very purpose for your existence. The reason why he made you. He made you in his image. And he wants to fill your life and express himself to the world through you. And in the process, you get the blessing of intimacy with him and of of absorbing all that he made you to be. Not only that, but you get heaven thrown in as well. You're standing in a dangerous place if you don't know Jesus Christ yet. Here's what he's willing to do for you right now. He's willing to take your sins, every sin that you've ever committed from the time that you were born, even the ones that you haven't committed yet, to remove them from your account and to place them upon himself. That's what he's willing to do for you right now. At the same time, he's willing to give you his Holy Spirit that his presence and his help and his comfort would abide with you. He says he'll write your name in his book and that he's going to reserve a place for you at his table and you'll be at his kingdom forever. He'll translate you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light and it will cost you absolutely nothing. It's absolutely free. And what you're called to do is to receive it. To answer the question as Joshua did and to say, what does my Lord say unto his servant? I want to give you an opportunity tonight to do that. If you have yet to place your faith in Christ, and tonight you hear the Spirit calling you while we sing this last song, I want you to just come. I want you to come to Christ tonight. Stand up out of your seat and make your way and just stand right right here in the front. And we're going to pray. I'm going to lead you in a prayer and, and you'll give your life to Christ and he's going to do that work in you. He's going to save your soul. 
And so if that's you tonight and you need Jesus and you know it and the Spirit of God has spoken to you, while we sing the song, don't be embarrassed. And even if it's just one person, this is the most important decision you'll ever make in your life to follow Jesus. So church is praying. We'll be singing. And you come. Come to Jesus tonight. Let's worship together.